You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Senator Todd Young joins the Post to discuss the Endless Frontier Act, a bipartisan effort to preserve America's global leadership by making bold investments in the research, development, and manufacturing of critical technology. Let's listen. Hi, good morning. Welcome to The Washington Post Live. I'm Jackie Alamany, author of the Power Up newsletter at The Washington Post. My guest today is Indiana Republican Senator Todd Young, who was elected to his first term in the U.S. Senate in 2016 after serving three terms in the House. Along with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Young has reintroduced the Endless Frontier Act, which calls for $100 billion in spending to advance U.S. science and technology innovation. We'll also get his take on the future of the Republican Party. Welcome, Senator Young. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Jackie. Good to have you. Uh, I want to just get into the Endless Frontier Act. Again, it calls for $100 billion in spending to help shore up U.S. and technology innovation. Can you walk us through uh, this bill and why you've reintroduced it and why we need it now? Sure. The Endless Frontier Act is an initiative in response to uh, China's very significant investments in research and development and sort of cutting edge 21st century technologies, things like artificial intelligence and quantum computing, uh, genomics, the very platforms uh, that will uh, be able to, uh, to build sectors of the economy on top of in the future. Uh, the United States of America historically has been very good, especially post-World War II, in investing in sort of the research and development science enterprise. Uh, but we've decreased our level of investment in recent decades. Meanwhile, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has significantly increased their investment. So if we're going to outgrow, out-innovate, and ultimately outcompete the Chinese Communist Party and ensure that our values uh, prevail and are defended, uh, as are our allies and partners uh, in the 21st uh, century, then uh, it's essential that we invest in these areas. And, and uh, so that's why we've reintroduced this legislation. Are we further behind China in science and technology innovation than we were four years ago before the start of the Trump administration? We are. We are. There's, uh, there's a real opportunity cost to waiting. Uh, we introduced this piece of legislation uh, just last year, and uh, even over that time period, we've seen significant investments by the Chinese Communist Party in things like artificial intelligence. So we just can't wait any longer. And in the midst of this global pandemic, there's also a diplomatic imperative to acting. The Chinese uh, have been uh, amplifying a, a message around the world, carrying it to many of the recipient countries of their Belt and Road Initiative investments that uh, the United States is, is divided on, on so many fronts. And of course, that's true. We are divided politically and civically, and um, we're going through a rough patch in our public life. But we've been here before. We don't want to fixate on that. We can demonstrate collectively through our elected officials and uh, through the administration uh, that we are unified when it comes to national security and defending our values. We are unified when it comes to uh, competing and outpacing the Chinese Communist Party by passing this Endless Frontier Act. A new version of the bill, however, has yet to be introduced. You had told reporters last week that some of your colleagues needed to grow more comfortable with the text. What are their hesitations? 
Well, I wouldn't characterize them as hesitations. I'm actually incredibly encouraged by the level of engagement we've seen from my colleagues. Uh, not only are members of the press like you and so many others uh, beginning to cover this in, a, in an incredibly um, uh, deep way and, and broad fashion, but uh, we're gaining a lot of interest from my colleagues and, and therefore uh, they are drafting up amendments there, there are additional things that they would like to add to this legislation or perhaps amend uh, as we work our way through so-called regular order through the regular committee process. And uh, uh, back to getting the bipartisan buy-in, this is how you do it. You crowd in as many good ideas as you can. Uh, you uh, push aside pride of authorship so that you end up with the best possible work product. And then hopefully you get 70, 75 or, or more bipartisan votes in the end. And I think that's the way we can send the most powerful message to the Chinese Communist Party that we are indeed unified. That's why Senator Schumer, I and other leaders on the Republican and Democratic side thought it was a good idea to hit pause so that others have an opportunity to meaningfully contribute to this process. Do you know yet what changes need to be made to the text in order to push this through the House and the Senate? We're waiting on all the amendments, so uh, I wouldn't want to highlight some uh, to the disadvantage uh, of others, but uh, all of this will be aired uh, through the regular order or, or public uh, committee process, uh, which is really how the Senate is supposed to work. It's not how it worked uh, with respect to the $1.9 trillion package that we began uh, this administration with. Uh, it's, it's not how it may work on infrastructure, uh, broadly defined, but it's how we intend to make things work as it relates to confronting uh, the Chinese Communist Party and ensuring that uh, we are equipped with the best tools uh, so there are war fighters never have to fight a fair fight, so there are diplomats have maximal leverage, and so that the American people, uh, their, their power, their talents, their dynamism, uh, their creativity can be harnessed in this whole of society effort to ensure, just as we did during the Cold War, that Western values uh, of freedom and opportunity and uh, agency among rank and file citizens prevails over the uh, state capitalist model of the Chinese Communist Party, which I have to say, right now, uh, it's a, that's a stable model. The, the, the communist authoritarian model, at least on the surface, seems stable to a lot of elites and to a number of government leaders around the world. And so we mustn't diminish or overlook the attractiveness of that model, uh, which is why it's really important uh, for the United States to project strength in unity as it relates to uh, this matter. The attractiveness of the communist model, you know, from what sort of perspective are, are you referring to? Well, let's say you're an elite in, uh, in, in Burma, uh, or let's say uh, you are a military leader in Burma. You might find uh, the, uh, the techno-authoritarian model that the Chinese Communist Party is perfecting uh, the the uh, in-a-box model that they're exporting to other countries through their technology and their surveillance state um, to be attractive uh, because it allows uh, the so-called communists, in reality, uh, they're, they're fascists, uh, worried about their own power and not uh, the individuals uh, who uh, they should be representing and protecting, which is the broader populace. Uh, but you might find that stability popular. Uh, it allows you to send your children to elite schools. 
in the United States and other countries. It allows you to 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 uh, to uh, uh, get a disproportionate uh, 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 benefit from from uh, the labor uh, of your citizens. Uh, it allows dissent to be quelled of any corrupt business practices uh, that uh, you may be involved in. These are all horrible things, of course, but it doesn't mean uh, that they're not appealing to people. So we need to provide a competing model, just as we did during the uh, Cold War, grounded in universal rights. Uh, this is what this country was founded on, of course, and um, freedom and uh, things I mentioned uh, before, uh, opportunity to uh, rise up the economic ladder, to start a family, to land a meaningful vocation, and to be equal in your citizenship uh, with, uh, with, with your fellow citizens. And uh, this, is, this is what the Republican Party should stand for moving forward. And this is what the Endless Frontier Act will help facilitate through these critical uh, federal investments just as we invested uh, in the wake of Sputnik and in the space race, and, and we're able to win that, uh, just as we invested in the interstate highway system, we can be very good at making these strategic bets. And um, this is the purpose of the Endless Frontier Act. And former President Trump consistently proposed and made cuts to science and technology investments, R&D spending. Do you believe that was a mistake over the course of his presidency? We've seen successive administrations uh, 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 decrease the level of investment, uh, Republican and Democrat, over the years. And much of that has to do uh, with uh, the belief that uh, in this globalized, uh, highly commercialized uh, environment we live in, the private sector will take up the slack. But we also know that there are public benefits to investment. We've seen this historically. Uh, through the creation of the internet. Uh, originally, it was, it was uh, the handiwork and, and tinkering and brainchild of, of uh, DARPA, uh, a defense uh, agency. Um, and uh, we, we've seen this through various other uh, innovations. In fact, the modern aerospace industry wouldn't really uh, exist. It certainly wouldn't be located uh, centrally in the United States of America, but for President Eisenhower's leadership and standing up NASA, followed by President Kennedy's leadership in uh, uh, deciding to walk point and uh, engage in a space race, put a person on the moon. Now we see after an investment of roughly $140 billion in the space race, an industry that uh, leads to $2.3 trillion worth of, of GDP contribution. Um, so uh, this is, uh, uh, this is a, a proven model uh, and one that just needs updating for the 21st century. And that's why uh, I, I am really encouraged to see the bipartisan support for it. Uh, 14 original co-sponsors and, and uh, you'll see those numbers grow as it works its way through the process. And I, I just want to state for the record that uh, President Obama actually did increase spending and, and the budget for uh, R&D. But before we get to some audience questions, I want to get to a provision in the bill that has received some criticism. As, there as, is a, percent, as, a, as a percentage of GDP, I think over the years we've seen a, a decrease uh, in, the, in the amount of uh, research and development. But regardless, one area where we have not seen 
an increase in uh, R&D has been in the physical sciences. We've done very well as it relates to basic research, but when it comes to the physical sciences, uh, things like robotics and advanced manufacturing and artificial intelligence and other areas, this is where the Chinese are clearly outclassing us, and it's where the United States has historically uh, been uh, done a better job, and, and we need to up our game. And this uh, provision in the bill that provides $10 billion to invest in tech startups uh, in regions, various regions around the country, some critics have pointed to past difficulties in trying to establish these hubs through government spending, um, arguing it's common for them to, much more common for them to rise organically. Why do you think these investments are going to work now? Well, because we have so much untapped potential uh, throughout the country. Uh, we are an information-driven, knowledge-driven uh, economy. Uh, sweat doesn't pay what it used to, and uh, the return on education and social capital uh, are incredibly high. So uh, we have underappreciated that in recent decades with the convergence of, of globalization, the scale of, econo of the economy has, has led to outsized benefits for those who uh, grow up in a zip code where they're afforded a, a strong educational environment and, and a lot of social capital. Automation has disrupted the lives and vocations of, of uh, a lot of individuals. And urbanization has led to the depopulation of, of many of our geographies. Uh, and as people move into the cities where so many of the larger enterprises are located. That means in the end, uh, through the convergence of this, this amalgam of forces, we have a number of people who aren't, you might say, fully in the game. People whose talents aren't being harnessed, that don't live on the coast, that don't live in major metropolitan areas like New York or, or uh, the Silicon Valley or Austin or the Research Triangle in North Carolina. And we need to harness that talent. So the tech hubs, are designed to take existing areas of expertise. In the state of Indiana, it might be genomics or advanced manufacturing or autonomous vehicles, all of which we have expertise in, our universities as well as the private sector, uh, and provide some seed investment there, which in turn, uh, as we saw in Silicon Valley and the Research Triangle and, and in Boston, will lead to more venture capital coming into the area, harnessing more talent, and these, each of these tech hubs, if well implemented, and that's always the key, Manufacturing USA most recently was a, a very well implemented hub concept. But if well implemented, uh, we'll see generations of talent uh, that is able to cycle through these tech hub locations and um, ensure that we're firing in all cylinders as a country so that once again, we can out innovate and out compete the Chinese Communist Party. And Senator Young, I want to throw you a question from the audience. We have Mark Palmer from Alabama who wants to know what needs to be done outside of the formal education system to help prepare grade school children for employment in these critical industries. Well, Mark, thank you for the question. Uh, it's a key question. Uh, the Endless Frontier Act uh, invests in post K through 12 educational expertise. So everything from the community college trained technologists that will be needed to help build artificial intelligence platforms to the postdoctoral level that will be needed to uh, take uh, robotics uh, to uh, the cutting edge 
uh, of technology. Uh, but K through 12, uh, as someone with four children, I understand, uh, is really foundational. And uh, I, I think we need uh, more flexibility uh, at the state level and at the local level. That can mean charter schools. Uh, and we've had great success with the charter school movement in Indiana. Uh, whenever you begin talking about school choice, it creates a, a measure of, of uh, controversy. Uh, but I do think that competition leads to uh, uh, better schooling uh, in those uh, schools that might receive so-called uh, vouchers or, or Pell Grants for K through 12 students. Uh, and I also think we need more stimulation, not K through 12, but um, in the pre-K space when brains are really developing. Not every parent has the benefit that I had. Uh, of one working parent and, and the other who um, is both able and wants uh, to stay at home, uh, to, to bond with a young child and, and uh, is able to stimulate the child's brain uh, at its, its most critical developmental stages. And we need to make sure that there is uh, there's sufficient opportunity, high quality daycare or, or pre-K uh, opportunities for uh, our youngest children. Uh, because in the end, uh, that is a national security issue that helps us dominate these technology areas uh, as the Endless Frontier Act advocates. So this is a critical piece of it, Mark. And staying on the topic of China, President Biden met uh, with Xi Jinping and other world leaders last weekend to discuss new climate goals. As countries around the world look to reduce emissions, how will these sorts of green initiatives impact foreign competitiveness? Well, one of the areas uh, that we identify as uh, potential areas of investment through a new technology directorate we create at the National Science Foundation uh, that will receive applications uh, from universities and other applicants uh, and uh, come up with the, the best uh, in-class technologies is um, is these advanced energy technologies, whether they're carbon-based technologies or instead zero carbon emission technologies. The US needs to lead the way here again. And um, we recognize that uh, climate is a global challenge that is, uh, it transcends borders. So it needs to be dealt with uh, collectively, working with other countries. Um, in parallel with the Endless Frontier Act, there are other committees of jurisdiction like the Foreign Relations Committee on which I sit that are developing legislation to deal with China and the national security threat it presents uh, to the American people. And uh, on foreign relations, I've inserted some legislation in there with uh, Senator Mark Warner that uh, calls for creation of a, a, a technology a consortium of countries that will work together to develop these next-gen technologies, will crowd in their funding, will crowd in their technological expertise, will ring-fence the elector, uh, intellectual property uh, where necessary, but uh, this, of course, would include in the area of advanced energy technology, because all these countries understand uh, that uh, doing nothing is, is just, um, it's not an option. And this is not the first time that you've gone after China. Last year with Senator Mitt Romney uh, and other of your peers, you introduced a Chinese sanctions bill called the Strategic Act. You said that the Communist Party has tested the U.S. unlike 
any other that we faced as a country. What is your reaction to China's takeover of Hong Kong and their persecution of the Uyghurs? Well, you know, in addition to um, our people, from a ge geopolitical standpoint, our greatest asset is our, as a country is our value system. And we need to continue to uh, hold up the lamp of liberty very brightly. Uh, we need to use this strategic competition as an opportunity, as we did during the Cold War, to become a better version of ourselves, to live up to our own national narratives of, of freedom and opportunity and equality. And we need to call out by name and consistently uh, call out uh, the Chinese Communist Party and other offenders uh, of those rights, standing up for uh, the rights and the dignity of, of all people. Now, um, we shouldn't be unrealistic. We need to be sober-minded and understand that uh, it takes uh, a number of years, uh, oftentimes generations, uh, to uh, bring regions and, and countries into positions of what I would regard as a, uh, a position of better behavior. But, um, but we do need to offer encouragement to those dissidents who speak out. As it relates to Hong Kong specifically, uh, I've, I've met with some of the brave dissidents. I've met with their leadership here in, in uh, Washington, D.C. I was the first United States senator to speak at uh, one of their rallies uh, as, as things really began to heat up in the last couple of years and the Chinese began to crack down on dissidents. I'll continue to speak out forcefully. I think uh, that's part of our obligation as elected officials. And do you think that the U.S. should boycott the Beijing Winter Olympics over the Chinese Communist Party's treatment of the Uyghurs? I actually think uh, the Senator Romney had uh, an excellent idea, which was a so-called diplomatic boycott. Uh, I have to admit I was unfamiliar with the concept previously, but that would just mean uh, government officials like myself, like members of the administration, should uh, agree uh, uh, not to attend the games. Uh, signaling that uh, we highly disapprove, uh, we abhor, and we condemn uh, the slavery uh, conditions uh, in which they require uh, Uyghur Muslims to work. We condemn uh, the, the executions and forced abortions uh, that they're involved in. Uh, we condemn the, the snatching of, of territory and the occupation uh, of disputed lands, on and on and on. And um, uh, I think that would be an appropriate response. And then I think uh, uh, we need to go in and, and uh, defeat the uh, communist Chinese uh, in every conceivable area that we can, uh, knowing that they dope their athletes and uh, they'll be cheating every step of the way, just as they cheat uh, when it relates to uh, matters of economics. And I want to get to the topic of this infrastructure bill that we're going to be hearing a lot of from President Biden himself this week. Republicans just issued their counter proposal of $506 billion, obviously much lower than what President Biden proposed, which was a $2.25 trillion infrastructure package. Progressive Democrats have pushed for as much as a $10 trillion package in spending. Uh, and Democratic Senator Chris Kuhn says he was open to $800 billion to $1 trillion. Why is there so much variation here between these top line numbers? And, and what do you support in spending on infrastructure? There's a lot of variation, candidly, because the administration, uh, and this comes from one of the more bipartisan senators, right? Uh, when when we can find common ground, I'm going to find it. But um, 
they've been picking abstract numbers out of the air. Uh, they've been putting a bumper sticker headline on top of it, and then they've been throwing a grab bag of goodies underneath it, some of which are actually consistent with the headline. Uh, many others are not. Uh, by President Biden's own definition, uh, you use the World Economic Forum's definition for infrastructure recently when asked what he thinks con uh, constitutes infrastructure. And he, his answer, in short, was um, uh, energy and transportation and, and, and the Internet. Well, that comprised 37 percent of, of the two and a half trillion dollar package, which takes you to about where Republicans are. We instead, with the leadership of, of my colleague, uh, Senator Shelley Moore Capito and some of my other colleagues, uh, we've come up with a, a sharpened pencil, more precise figure, and uh, we want to work as we have traditionally worked uh, to get infrastructure done. I will indicate that the package that uh, Republicans have put forward was twice, two times uh, roughly, uh, what uh, was passed during the, you mentioned President Obama earlier, during the Obama years. So this is an incredibly robust infrastructure package. And um, one doesn't want to become desensitized to the amount of money uh, that we are spending. We can in invest, we can invest robustly, and I think we should, uh, but we shouldn't spend this money as though uh, it's never going to have to be paid back. And the second part of this plan, which the administration is going to be releasing in short order, do you support the American Families Plan? Well, here again, I, I support some of the initiatives. I, I mentioned um, who wouldn't support American families, first of all, right? Uh, some of these bills uh, carry names that uh, invite popular support when you just look at the headline name. But uh, I support investment uh, in our nation's children. I support investment in our nation's seniors. Uh, if I recall, uh, these are among the categories of investment that uh, the Biden administration uh, supports investing in. I support uh, housing affordability, but I've come up with creative ways to fund many of these things. Uh, I've come up with cost-effective ways to make these investments. Uh, I've received no consultation. Instead, we've seen uh, a two and a, a nice round two and a half trillion dollar figure thrown out, and uh, we're even told that uh, should we come to a bipartisan agreement on traditional infrastructure, some of the things I mentioned earlier, we're still going to get a $2.5 trillion infrastructure package and then probably a follow-on multi-trillion dollar package. So, you know, um, President Biden is, is, is um, evidently not asserting himself quite a bit as the left flank of his party pressures him to support, uh, you mentioned, $10 trillion uh, worth of, of investments. Uh, and um, I, I wish he would assert himself more. He's always been a person of, of, um, of uh, 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 seemingly uh, strong opinions. I'm wondering, though, I spoke with a Democratic pollster um, and with a Republican pollster who echoed her sentiments that female voters in particular don't necessarily see a distinction between soft infrastructure and hard infrastructure and are really just... Uh, have been hit so hard by the pandemic that um, they are in favor of these soft infrastructure spending, um, regardless of what the government is calling it. Um, are you worried that if Republicans don't get behind the American Families Act, that it's going to maybe widen the gender gap going into 2022 and, and cause the Republican Party to lose more female voters, some of which are, you know, Trump no, supporters who have... 
No, I'm not. I, I'm not at all. Uh, in, in in fact, um, you know, I, I just indicated that uh, I, I support so many of these things and have developed uh, specific thoughtful solutions as it relates to investing in these areas. And I think it would, frankly, it would it would be insulting to many females uh, to to suggest that they wanted to be profligate uh, in our investments towards these things. They want bold investment. Uh, according to the polling, but if they learned that there was a smarter, better, more effective, more targeted way to make these investments, um, uh, you know, women would, uh, w women would of course, uh, choose that option over a more expensive, uh, less thoughtful uh, option. So we just need to uh, continue to communicate that we support so many of, the, of these priorities, uh, make principled arguments when we can get uh, the microphone as you've given me a platform here, to demonstrate uh, that support. And then we're given the opportunity uh, to work with Democrats, uh, put forward those better proposals uh, as we're doing through the Endless Frontier Act, uh, through a process that allows for multiple amendments that invites uh, members of both parties to present their best ideas to sand and polish proposals so that we get it right for the American people, setting aside ideology setting aside party affiliation and, and political gamesmanship and uh, ultimately advancing what uh, is the quintessentially American uh, approach, was, which is a pragmatic and uh, apolitical nonpartisan approach. We only have time for one more question, unfortunately, but I've got to ask you, how do you think that former President Trump has changed the Republican Party and would you support him again if he runs for president in 2024? Well, he's going to have to make a decision uh, about his run in 2024, but um, I commend uh, uh, the Republican leadership and President Trump over the last four years for elevating issues that uh, really were not top of mind for a lot of individuals going into the 2016 election cycle, but now they're foremost on our mind. Uh, for example, uh, and I mentioned some of these forces earlier, uh, urbanization converging with automation and globalization. This has fundamentally disrupted uh, the lives of, of uh, individuals, rank and file, regular people who are not to be writ written off as baskets of deplorables, uh, who should not be um, accused of temporary fits of populism, but uh, underlying their grievances and their anxieties and their concerns and challenges um, are the failure of our institutions. Uh, from media uh, to uh, higher ed to uh, our, our largest business enterprises to government at every level to actually deal with these different issues. President Trump elevated the fact that China had been ripping off our intellectual property. President Trump elevated the issue that we have too many judges that misunderstand their role and think they're legislators. And President Tr Trump um, advanced and, and, and got put into place a number of policies that led to economic gains for all Americans across different income groups and geographies. But now we need to write the next chapter of thoughtful solutions, of investing in, in uh, those, those rank and file individuals uh, who have historically made America great, of unleashing their imprisoned lightning so that um, we can uh, become a better version of ourselves. Uh, defeat China and win the 21st century. Senator Todd Young, thank you so much for joining us today. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you, Jackie. 
And coming up this afternoon at 5 p.m., fresh off of his Oscar win, is John Baptiste, the musician, artist, and activist who's part of the trio who won an Oscar for the score of the animated film Soul. That's at 5 p.m. And later this week, we've got Cindy McCain and the CEO of United Airlines. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. We'll see you all later. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.